Welcome to the podcast of Seven Rivers Villages Church in Wildwood, Florida. We are a multi-generational community of grace on mission, and you are always invited to join us online or in person. Learn more about us at sevenriversvillages.org. We're going to read from Hebrews chapter 1 this morning. We're going to read the whole chapter, and don't worry, I'm not going to try and expound every little detail that's in here. There's a lot in here. Uh, Really, the goal of this sermon this morning is just to give us some tools to help us to read the book of Hebrews uh, devotionally and in a way that's edifying in our own study. Uh, Of course, I'm not going to be starting a series on Hebrews this morning. I'm just here today. Uh, And so I want to just leave you with some tools uh, that will be helpful to you, hopefully, uh, in the future. Um, Before we read, I want to thank you, of course, for having me. Uh, I bring you greetings from Reformed Theological Seminary, where it was mentioned I'm staff and student, and moreover from Reformation Orthodox Presbyterian Church, where uh, my wife and I are members. Uh, My wife, Gina, and my daughter, Maggie, were really hoping to be here uh, this morning, but my wife was not feeling well and decided she better stay put. Um, It's wonderful to be with you, though. It really is. Hebrews chapter 1, then. We're going to read the whole chapter. Hear the word of the Lord. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you, or again I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You've loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions." And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's pray that he would add his blessing to it now. Heavenly Father, we stand in awe of your Son. We pray that you would show us glorious and great and beautiful things about yourself and about your Son through your word this morning. In his name we ask it. Amen. Imagine this setting for a moment, if you would. A preacher stands up in front of an audience of Jewish believers. 
they have lived their whole lives under the law of Moses. Every year, they've taken their lamb to the temple to be sacrificed. They've memorized hundreds of portions of scripture just by hearing it over and over and over again and singing it over and over and over again and seeing it played out in their ceremonies and their festivals over and over and over again. They've suffered the persecution of other uh, uh, Roman and other cultures simply because that kind of religious dedication is actually unsettling to outsiders. Their whole lives and the lives of their ancestors for dozens of generations back have been characterized by the law of Moses. Moses, that great prophet, and that law which he left them at God's instruction. And now this preacher stands up and he clears his throat and he says, I am here to tell you about someone who is greater than Moses. He's got their attention, to say the least. Many scholars believe that the book of Hebrews was originally a sermon, and that's been written down and put in book form for us. And though we don't know who preached this sermon, it's fair to say that he wasn't shy. It is in bold and striking terms that the author of Hebrews begins his book. And really, the whole chapter we just read is just an introduction to his main point. It sets the tone. It tells us right off the bat what direction this sermon is headed. The author slash preacher, and I'll use those terms interchangeably today, he's telling us up front, this book, this sermon, is about Jesus Christ, the Son, who is far greater than anything that came before him, who is far superior to the things that you used to think were just so good, who is in every way necessary to your right standing before God, This is quite the introduction because Hebrews is going to be quite the sermon. You see, the author of Hebrews, he knows his audience very well, and he knows that they have some issues. He knows that they have this tendency to rely on themselves to earn favor in God's sight. They seem to think that by following the law of Moses, they can uh, work their way by their good behavior into a close relationship with God, if they can just keep the holy days, if they can just avoid those certain foods, if they can sacrifice the right animals, they can have right standing with God. That's their thinking. And on one level, it's a good impulse, right? God left them that law through Moses, and they want to follow it. And they expect the blessings that are attached to it. The problem, though, as Hebrews is going to point out, is that they're living in the past. They're living in the past. The law of Moses, you see, it was never meant to be an end in itself. It always pointed to something bigger and better. And the bigger, better thing it pointed to was their actual salvation in Jesus Christ. So things like the purely moral commandments, like the Ten Commandments, they're they're grounded in God's character. And they're relevant and applicable to all people in every time and place. But other parts of the law of Moses like, say, the government laws, the civil laws, well, those aren't necessarily binding on us today. And Hebrews is going to spend a long time talking about the ceremonial laws, some of these religious worship laws. And it's going to point out that they're no longer necessary. So what was once the best that a person could do, keeping the law of Moses, it no longer has the same function for the people of God now that Jesus has come. 
It no longer does any good to anyone to keep living in that land of shadows and of foretellings now that the reality is here. The author of Hebrews, he knows his audience, and he knows that they, like us, they need to be more impressed by just how great their salvation is. They need to be more impressed by just how great their Savior is. He knows that his readers, they need to stop clinging to some false idea about how they're going to earn their way into God's good books by their mere religiosity. And instead, they need to look to Jesus as their only hope of being brought near to God. So today we're not going to come close, as I said, to discussing the full depth of Hebrews 1. We're really going to take a comb through a passage that calls for an excavator if we really want to get everything out of it. But I do want to draw out some of the things that this chapter has to tell us about Jesus. And I want to talk about some of the significant um, applications of that as we read the book of Hebrews going forward, give you some tools to understand uh, the main body of the book. So as we're going to see, uh, the introduction to Hebrews, which we just read, it argues that Jesus Christ, the Son, he reconciles us to God in three ways, by being our supreme, our great prophet, priest, and king. If we were to put that in a few more words, we might say that Jesus is presented in the introduction to Hebrews as the revealer of God, as the purifier of God's people, and as the ruler of all things. Those will be our three points today. So let's turn to our Bibles and consider how this incredible passage uh, teaches all of this. The first way in which Jesus is presented here is as the revealer of God. In verses 1 and 2, we read, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son. The point here is pretty simple. God has given his people in past real, true, accurate knowledge about himself through the prophets. For thousands of years, he had given them Moses and Elijah and Samuel and Isaiah and Habakkuk and all those other prophets we still find in our Bibles today. And the words that they spoke, they were true. God really did reveal himself and make himself known to his people through the prophets. That's why those words are still in our Bibles for us even now. But now in what the author calls these last days, God has gone a step further. He's spoken to us about himself by his very own son. When he talks about these last days, that's not an ominous term. It shouldn't make us paranoid. He's not talking about the last few days before the end of the world. It's a comparative term. Moses and the prophets, they came at the beginning, toward the beginning at least, of God's plan to save his people. But Jesus comes right towards the end. So it's actually a hopeful term. It should give us confidence This isn't about the coming apocalypse. It's saying that God's plan for our salvation is almost complete. Now that Jesus has come, there's not a whole lot that still has to happen. God, by his son, has brought about the salvation of his people already. And in the works and the words of Jesus, during his time here on earth, he has taught us so very much about his own character and his will, his desire for us and about his plan for our redemption. Uh, By sending his son, God has revealed to us in simple and straightforward ways, not just that he intends to save us, but how he intends to save us, and out of what love he's saving us, and for what purpose he's saving us. 
Jesus then, he's revealed to us plainly things that were a bit murky in the prophecies of his predecessors. Now beyond just what we've read in verses 1 and 2 though, Hebrews tells us something more about the Son's work of revealing God to us. You see, Hebrews doesn't just argue that Jesus comes as another prophet, but this time with a less ambiguous message, a less foggy word about God. No, according to Hebrews 1, the Son is himself the word of God. Elsewhere in the passage, we read that it's by the Son that God created the world. Now again, put yourself in the position of a first century Jewish hearer, right? Somebody starts preaching about the creation of the world, and you say, oh, I know this one. Genesis 1. God creates the world by speaking, by a word. And then he starts talking about how the Son also upholds the world by the word of his power, and you say, yeah, I know that already. But then you listen a little closer. It didn't say that God created the world by the word of his mouth. It says the Son, or or that he created the world by his Son. And it doesn't say that God upholds the world by the word of his power. It says the Son upholds the world by the word of his power. And so you start making some connections. And you say, well, if Genesis says that God created the world by his word, and Hebrews says that God created the world by his Son, the Son and the Word must be the same. And if the Bible tells me that it's God who upholds all things by the word of his power, and then Hebrews tells me that it's the Son who does that, well, God and the Son must in some way be the same thing. He's teaching them really incredible things in just a few words here. When the preacher says then that God created the world by his Son, he's saying that the Son is fully God himself. So the Son is the Word of God, and He is the Word about God, and He is God. So if we were to synthesize all of this into just a short teaching from the introduction to Hebrews, we could say Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God because He is God Himself speaking a word about God Himself. And what's more, He's not just speaking in shadowy or hard-to-understand ways. Verse 3 says that He is the exact imprint of of God's nature, if we want to understand the greatness of the difference between the revelation given through the prophets and the revelation given in Jesus Christ, we could think of the difference between looking at someone's shadow and looking at the person themselves. It's not that the shadow is not true in some way. That really is the shape of that person. And it's not that it isn't real. It really is generated by their actual presence there. But the shadow is inferior in two ways. The shadow doesn't have nearly all the details, and the shadow is not the person. In a similar way, Moses and the prophets, their revelation of God was true, and it was real. But in comparison with the person, Jesus Christ, the Word, the Son of God himself, that revelation pales. So it's not that the prophets, Moses, and the rest didn't give us true and inspired and still helpful revelation of God. It's just that now that we've seen the word himself in the flesh, we have to read all of those prophets in the context of this greater knowledge. This is a principle that's going to be key to understanding the book of Hebrews. Uh, Theologians call this typology. Typology can get complicated, but it doesn't need to be. Typology is simply understanding how the Bible presents this unfolding revelation of God and of his plan for our salvation. Things that in the Old Testament we see in shadow form, 
In the New Testament, when Jesus comes, we see in all of their grandeur and beauty. One man, one theologian, Benjamin Warfield, I think has the best analogy for this. Uh, Kids, can you picture a room that has the most beautiful furniture you've ever seen in it? These gorgeous curtains, maybe adults, you think of Downton Abbey, right? It's just extravagant rooms. They've got cloth on their walls instead of wallpaper. But the lights are way down low. And you can't really tell. What do you have to do in order to present to someone a beautiful room? Do you have to bring in nice furniture? No, you've got all of that already. You just have to turn the lights on. And so Warfield says that Jesus Christ, the light, illuminates for us everything that was already there in the Old Testament. God's love and his mercy and his grace and all of his glory are there in Moses and the prophets. But it's only with Jesus that we come to understand and see them for everything that they have been all along. So Jesus is the revelation of God because he's the word of God himself. He's the illuminated image of what we saw only dimly before he came to earth. But Hebrews has even more to say about who Jesus is. Uh, This is our second point. It also says that Jesus is the purifier of God's people. He's the purifier of God's people. Uh, Ironically, this is what the book of Hebrews as a whole is going to spend most of its uh, pages discussing, but here in the introduction it barely gets a mention. It's almost as though the preacher here in his introduction, he wants to hint at what he's going to be talking about, but he has to lay some groundwork first. So he's just going to mention in verse 3, that the Son makes purification for our sins, as if we wouldn't notice that little bit. And in verse 14, he's just going to casually drop that there's this people who are meant to inherit salvation, but he'll get to that later. You see, the central argument of Hebrews is going to be this claim that Jesus Christ has superseded, he's gone above and beyond all of the ceremonial rites and rituals and pageantry of the law of Moses. He's made all of those things redundant. All of those things which pointed to our promised salvation but did not actually save us in and of themselves apart from faith in the salvation which was still yet to come at that time. Because the preacher spends so little time talking about this in chapter 1 though, I don't want to belabor the point this morning, uh, but I do want to think about how this chapter uh, affords us an opportunity to reflect on the great salvation which has been not only revealed by Jesus, but accomplished by him. You see, he makes all of those Old Testament rites and rituals and ceremonies and sacrifices, he makes all of them redundant, not just by getting rid of them, but by fulfilling them. Jesus doesn't come to earth and say, sacrifice? Who needs sacrifice? We're getting rid of that. He doesn't say, hey, who needs mediation? Who needs someone to stand between sinful God and holy, uh, sinful man and holy God? We're doing away with mediation. No, he says, I will become the perfect and final sacrifice. I will become the perfect and continuing mediator for God's people. All of those shadows of the Old Testament, they meet their perfect fulfillment in Jesus and his work. After all, they were only ever meant to point the people to Jesus and his work and to drive them to an obedient faith in the promise of a great salvation that was yet to come. So Hebrews is going to present the Son 
not just as the revelation of God, but as our great high priest, as the one who takes away the sins of the world by offering himself as the ultimate sacrifice. So the question to ask ourselves as we're reading the book of Hebrews then is going to be this. In what ways am I living as though Jesus Christ has not already perfectly fulfilled all the shadows of the Old Testament? In what ways am I acting, speaking, thinking, even feeling as though God has not yet sent his son to make purification for my sins? In what ways do I worship and pray that are inconsistent with the idea that Jesus is my great high priest right now? Is my worship and my prayer hindered by a self-sufficient spirit of law-keeping when I'm in the midst of suffering? Do I suffer like someone for whom Jesus Christ is pleading before the Father who's bearing my burdens Or do I suffer like the world, without hope, without any comfort? In what ways am I living as though Jesus has not already accomplished this great salvation? I think reading the book of Hebrews with questions like those in mind uh, is an immensely beneficial exercise. Uh, There is a ton of theology in Hebrews, uh, and the argument itself can be difficult to track at times, uh, and we may not always understand Uh, the whole book right away as we read it. I know I don't. Uh, But there's no passage in Hebrews I would suggest to you uh, which we can't read, take something away from, and then ask these sorts of questions or really ask ourselves these sorts of questions as we read and meditate on it. Uh, The author to Hebrews, he knows his audience, and that includes us. He knows that we have our issues, and so he preaches not just to our heads but to our hearts. The theology of Hebrews, my friends, it's wonderful and it's expansive. I'm in seminary. You know I like theology. But the ultimate purpose of Hebrews is not to get us to understand typology or to figure out who this Melchizedek guy is. The ultimate purpose of Hebrews is to encourage us to have faith in Jesus and to stop living in the past, to stop living in that shadowy realm of the Old Testament. The sermon is meant to make us not only question ourselves and our way of living, though, it's also meant to reassure us, to reassure us that despite our failures and our sin, the redemption that God has promised has already been accomplished for us. It's not contingent upon us. It's already been taken care of. The book of Hebrews is going to talk a good deal about apostasy, about falling away from the church and from faith. And rightly so, those who don't lay aside the trappings of religious formalism, of a faithless hypocrisy, they're bound to fall away eventually, right? But the hope that Hebrews offers is that Jesus has chosen us to inherit salvation. We're going to talk about inheritances more in the next point, so I won't dwell on it here. But the thing to bear in mind now is that inheritances have nothing to do with the performance of the one who receives Inheritances are based solely upon the hard work and the love of the person who gives the inheritance. They have everything to do with the riches and the generosity of the inheritor. So the introduction to Hebrews, it sets the tone for the rest of the book. 
by putting everything else in the context of Jesus, the Son of God, as the purifier of God's people in whom we become inheritors of salvation. And that's the key to understanding everything that follows. It is important to understand as we read Hebrews, though, uh, that even though that theme dominates, it's not the only thing going on. Uh, We've already seen that the greatest and fullest revelation of God is Jesus, and the author wants us to keep that in mind. But now in our third point, uh, we're going to consider how he's also presented to us as the ruler of all things, the ruler of all things. Uh, The introduction to Hebrews spends the most time on this point, actually. Uh, Let's look back at just some of the elevated and kingly language that the preacher uses to describe the son here. Uh, In verse 2, he calls him the heir of all things. Uh, We don't use that word heir very often. We're a little bit more private nowadays about things like finances and inheritances. But back when Hebrews was written, it was oftentimes common knowledge that just because of who your daddy was, you were going to inherit something, whether it be an estate, a throne, a title. And so inheritances were common knowledge, frequently talked about. What wasn't often said was that somebody had inherited literally everything. No prince had ever taken control of the entire universe upon the death of his father. And yet in verse 3, it says that the son, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This is royal language. And the imagery is actually very fascinating. And I think it could be lost on us because we're not uh, first century readers uh, of this text. I think the best way to describe it is uh, by describing what it isn't saying. Um, About a year ago when my little daughter uh, turned one and a half, I decided to pick her up with this little plastic Adirondack chair at Target, little red thing, and it's just her size, and she loves this thing. Why? Because she can stick that in the living room, and when I turn on a soccer game, she can put her armchair next to my armchair, and she can say everything back at the TV that I'm saying to it. And when I crack out a book, she can pull out the Hungry Hungry Caterpillar and pretend she's studying. It's her little mini armchair, and she sits right off to the side of Daddy, right? We can be tempted, I think, to think that this is what's happening here in Hebrews 1, that the Son ascends to heaven, and he gets a little mini throne next to the Father's, right at his right hand. But that's not really what's being said. Back when this was written, everybody knew what this expression meant, to sit at the right hand of one's father, It meant to sit in his lap. It meant to share the seat, or in this case, the throne, with him. And when your throne symbolizes dominion over all things, well, you can make the connection there. The Son shares dominion over all things with the Father. That's what's being said here. Uh, Verse 4 says that the Son ascends to this heavenly throne, having become as much superior to the angels as the name that he's inherited is more excellent than theirs. His kingship is not just over this world, but even over the heavenly beings who minister in God's presence. Again, I feel the need to clarify real quick. Uh, This is not somehow saying that at one point, the Son, the second person of the Trinity, ranked equal to or less than the angels. But after a guy makes purification for sins, you kind of have to promote him. That's not what's being said here. Jesus is never ranked equal or below his own creation. But we have to remember the context of the Son coming to earth, humbling himself, placing himself under the constraints of his own creation. 
under the law, dying a cursed death on the cross, compared with those things, being seated at the right hand of the majesty on high, is a promotion. So when we see Jesus doing miracles and things like that in the Gospels, we're being reminded that the Son is still very much the ruler of all things. He's just chosen voluntarily to submit himself and to humble himself for a time. But having accomplished that work of salvation, right? He says, it is finished. Having accomplished that work, the Son ascends back into heaven and instead of being humiliated and humbled there, he is exalted. The gentle and lowly Jesus is enthroned as the eternal Son of God. And that's what this string of references to the Psalms that we read through is all about. Let's run through them just very quickly. Verse 5, Jesus is above the angels. Why? Well, because God has never told one of the angels, you are my son, and I as eternal God eternally beget you. Verse 6, Jesus is above the angels. Why? Well, because he's the firstborn. In an ancient inheritance culture, the firstborn, he gets the lion's share of the inheritance, and he gets the title. And so God tells all the angels to worship him. Verses 7 to 14, Jesus is above the angels. Why? Well, because the angels minister and carry out God's purposes, but the Son is anointed. Again, kingly imagery. And he's enthroned forever and ever. He eternally rules over all things in righteousness, and the whole world is under his dominion, whether we would recognize it or not. You see, the angels carry out God's orders, but the Son is the God who gives the orders. So Jesus is far greater than all his creation, even the angels. He's not only the revelation of God and the purifier of God's people, he's the ruler of all things, who, as Hebrews 12 is going to tell us, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross and he despised the shame and now is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Uh, It's absolutely vital that we grasp this here in the introduction to Hebrews and not at the end. Everything that follows is about the priesthood uh, of Jesus is really meaningless if he's not also the eternal God, the ruler of all things. Think about it. What good is it if I offer to sacrifice myself for your sins? I'm a sinner like you. Me dying would maybe barely make up for my own sins, never mind yours. What good is it if I say, you know what, you're not right with God, Don't worry about it. I will talk to him. I'll sort this out for you. I could never do that. I have no right to do that. If you've read Exodus 32, you might remember uh, after the golden calf episode, Moses tried to do that, and God shut him down. He said that is not how this works. But the whole point of Hebrews in one sense is that Jesus is far greater than Moses. The greatness and the supremacy and the praiseworthiness of Jesus Christ ought to drive us to our knees, my friends, as we beg God, show me in what ways I have yet to understand and internalize this great salvation that you have accomplished on my behalf. Help me to live like someone for whom the eternal Son of God humbled himself and died. Grant me the grace of repentance that I would let go of these empty delusions of somehow earning my way into God's favor when that can only be had by faith. 
strip away this veneer of churchiness. Give me a contrite heart and a desire to be clothed in righteousness instead of concealed by ritual. That's the response we should have to this book. That's the right posture for someone who's just read the introduction to Hebrews. And that's how we should live our lives as those who are meant to inherit salvation. Hebrews, in closing, my friends, Hebrews is a book about our Lord Jesus Christ, but it's a book for you and me. Hebrews contains some of the loftiest theology in all of Scripture, but its message is as simple as this. Jesus Christ died for poor sinners like us. And by faith, we can enter into an unbreakable covenant relationship with God. Hebrews is going to complain, contain complex passages and stern warnings and lengthy arguments. But its most basic purpose is to help us to shed the pretense of hypocrisy as we behold the splendor and the glory and the love of God displayed in his incarnate son. And so I ask you this morning, do you know that son? Do you truly believe that he is the revelation of God? Come to earth in order that you would more fully grasp and comprehend the beauty of your maker? Do you truly believe that he has accomplished salvation for you? That even now you can approach the throne of God in worship with, with unveiled faith, face, with nothing to hide? And do you believe that he is the ruler of all things, including your own life? Have you submitted yourself to him and to his will? If not, then Hebrews, my friends, is for you. Let it overwhelm you with the greatness of the Son and drive you to put your faith in him. And if you have already, then Hebrews is also for you. Let it strengthen your faith this morning by holding before you the wonder of your God and the beauty of his salvation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, a thousand years are as a day in your sight, and yet you have loved us so well as to give us this text for this day. All the angels serve your purposes, but you have sent your Son, very God of very God, to be your word incarnate and to accomplish our salvation. May the hearts of your people be turned toward you today in humility and in adoration and in faith. Grant us to behold the glory of your Son, in whose exalted name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us on this podcast, a production of Seven Rivers Villages Church in Wildwood, Florida. Learn more at sevenriversvillages.org.